Hello, and welcome to Startup, the podcast about what it is really like to start a business. I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is episode four of our special Gimlet-based mini-season. And here at Gimlet, we have a lot of plans for the upcoming year. In addition to the four shows we've already launched, Startup, Reply All, Mr. Show, and Surprisingly Awesome, we have a bunch of new podcasts we're making right now, all of which we're hoping to launch in 2016. And just to give you a little taste of what I'm talking about, there's one show that we're doing about family history. It touches on genealogy. It goes on these crazy explorations all around the globe and back and forth through time. There's an amazing series called Science Versus, where host Wendy Zuckerman looks at a cultural trend or movement and sees how it stacks up against actual science. So, for example, Science Versus the Paleo Diet or Science Versus Medical Marijuana. Wendy did a first season already for Australian radio, but she's joined Gimlet now to do her show with us from now on. So that's coming out in 2016. We're doing a series with Jonathan Goldstein, the creative force behind some of my favorite stories ever on This American Life and the former host of a long-running and beloved podcast on the CBC called Wiretap. And there's many more than that, and it's all super exciting. But each new show is a big investment. And recently, I sat down with my co-founder, Matt, and Chris Giliberti, our chief of staff, Matt's deputy on the business side, to answer a simple question. Can we afford to do this? Uh, Chris, you built a spreadsheet to help us figure that out, right? I did build a spreadsheet. I built a spreadsheet, and I built uh, a PowerPoint deck. (laughs) Uh (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of guy Chris is. You ask him to build a spreadsheet, and he throws in a PowerPoint for the hell of it. He's a business world whiz kid. He worked at Boston Consulting Group, the prestigious management consulting firm that Matt came from. We think that by the end of next year, we'll have nine shows up and running. Mm-hmm. And by the end of 2017, we'll have 12 up and running. Okay. Um, with a staff of 60 folks, roughly, in 2016 and 75 in 2017. So going the way we're going right now, with the money we have in the bank right now, could we do it? No. Today on the show, what you want versus what you can afford. What do you do if those two things don't match up? You could do less, or in the world of startups, there's another option, which we'll discuss. As Chris and Matt and I talk, I run through the spreadsheets that Chris has made. The next two years in neat little boxes. Headcount, revenue, Money in the bank. Chris has made some assumptions based on the last year of data we have from running the business. He figured that for each show we launch, we'll be paying a full half year of costs, salary and benefits for a full staff of three to five people before the first episode launches. So a full half year of spending before we make one dime of revenue from the ads on the show we're making. And what's interesting, even with that, our bank account never actually dips below zero. The lowest it dips is a couple hundred grand before it starts to go back up again as more shows come online and begin to generate revenue. So I wonder, why can't we make all the shows we're planning to make with the money we have in the bank right now? Matt explains that the projections I'm looking at right now, that's the, quote, expected scenario. That's if the future behaves more or less like the past. A dangerous assumption to make about the future. There's also, like, a poor scenario where audience growth weekends we cancel a show or we like pilot stuff that we don't end up putting out and ad rates decline and then we run out of money Mm -hmm. or we are forced to like make very like we're forced to make cuts and like tighten our belt and put a lot of pressure on the business that I don't think we want to do. Mm -hmm. To Chris and Matt, the implication here is clear. To be safe, we either need to slow down our plans or raise more money. And to them, again, it's obvious. We should raise more money. 
you're 100% on that, you think? Yeah, unless we, so if we go out and try to raise money, and it's hard to do, or people don't want to give, investors don't want to give us money, mm-hmm. then I think we should not raise, we shouldn't try to force it. Right. We still have a path to grow into something yeah. great, even if we don't raise. Yeah. It'll take a little longer, and it'll be more of a hustle. Is there any part of you that sort of feels like there's value in doing it that way? Yeah, definitely. Say more about that. I think like constraints breed creativity. <laughs> and maybe it's a good thing if we have to only choose two shows to do. Like if you can only do two shows instead of four shows, it's likely that those two shows will be the ones that you really care about and you'll like actually be more focused on them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, there's an argument that, yeah, like from like, constraint including financial constraint like you are more inventive mm-hmm. would any part of you be secretly happy if like we go out and we're like actually the, the market has changed we can't raise on the terms we want to raise would there be some part of you that would be relieved no no I would be I would I, I won't be too happy if we can't raise <laughs> <laughs> we cannot it's just it would be such a shame to not get to to not get to grow and invest in all these new shows that we're excited about I'm, I guess, probably not surprisingly, a little bit more conflicted about this. We have around 25 employees now. That number will more than double. By the end of 2017, it'll triple. I remember the first spreadsheet that Matt and I made before we even launched the company, back when we were still out trying to raise money. We filled in those boxes with what felt like guesses. December 2015, 15 employees. The fact that one day in the future, that number in the spreadsheet cell would actually correspond to real people seemed insane. Well, we're now living in that future. I've seen how spreadsheet cells can become real life. And yet, it is still hard for me to make sense of the numbers in Chris's spreadsheet. 60 people. I asked Matt if he's having the same reaction. Does this feel more real to you than the first spreadsheet we did before we started the company? It doesn't. It doesn't. Like, analytically, it does. Like, I look at it, and I... Obviously, like, we came up with the numbers, so... We have data now. Yeah. 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 Um, But I think... Can I fully imagine what it's going to be like? No. No. Yeah. It's going to be really different if this bears out the way we, we drew it out. Yeah. What, what do you, it's going to feel like a different company? It's going to feel like a totally different company. And what if by different, we mean worse? So it's something I'm scared about. This is Reply All producer Fia Benin. We had presented Chris's spreadsheet at a staff meeting. And afterwards, Fia and I went into the studio to talk about it. That meeting the other week where you you guys announced that, like, that by the end of next year, it was that the staff is expected to be 60 people. Mm -hmm. That got me really scared. And I think that, like... I'm having a lot of fear about change when I'm so happy. Right. This is my favorite job I've ever had. This is the happiest work experience I've ever had. It's really fun to be able to tell people that. Mm-hmm. I like that I know everybody here. Working on another radio station, you would go to warm up your food at the microwave and you'd put in your food, and you'd press two minutes, and you'd stand there and wait for your food to heat, and somebody else would be waiting right next to you to heat up their food, and you both made radio, but you didn't talk, and you watched a ticker go down of, like, we're here for two minutes. 
but I'm not going to, like, speak to you. Right. And I don't want to go towards that. Right. Fia was voicing a concern that I had as well. A lot of us did. A concern that argued against taking more money. Why not grow more slowly? Keep that small company feel. Why rush headlong down a path that could end up in cubicle farms and Dilbert cartoons and people griping about bad cases of the Mondays? But, as Matt pointed out, there were plenty of things about the way things were now that no one would be sad to leave behind. Like, I would say, like, this company is still in a very, like, scrappy kind of, like, duct tape and popsicle stick phase. It's you just, right. like, <laughs> it's me, like, running around with the chicken. We have, we've yeah. proven the model, and now, like, uh-huh. we have to build out the organization to support this, th- right. this machine. And uh-huh. so hiring a group of editors that are going to work across shows and engineers that are going to work across shows and building studios. And moving to a, another office that can accommodate our growth, too. Right. Where we don't have to, like, unplug the power cord in order to get rid of the buzz on the Pro Tools. And stuff. Right. right. And we don't need to contemplate calling the police about gas. <laughs> gas. The gas smell. Yeah, we had, we had, we had one of the hosts that we're working with came in and he's like, guys, I think we need to call the police. I smell gas. <laughs> and and he was like, like, this is really dangerous. And we're like, no. We, <laughs> we smell that for the whole year we've been here. <laughs> And of course, we all know this, including Fia. We can't stay this way forever. Startups are supposed to grow. When I accepted the position, part of what made me excited was I was like, I'm getting to participate in something and be with it as it evolves. Like, that was what I wanted. So, right. like, yeah, I think that I, it's not like I came in being like, it's always going to be 20 people big, right? Right, right. Yeah, it's a little like you have a baby right now, uh-huh. and you're like, I know it's going to grow. Like, I can't, it's a perfect baby. I love my baby. But, like, it, it you can't stop it. <laughs> right. Exactly. And the thing is, like, making yeah. sure that, like, as the baby grows, it doesn't get to some point where you're like, who are you? And for all the people at the company like Fia and me who are apprehensive about the changes coming to the baby... There are plenty of others here who are just excited about them, who came here, in fact, specifically because the baby's going to grow. What do you think, Chris? Been sitting here watching this? I think, I, like, I, no part of me would be relieved if we didn't raise a round. Mm-hmm. Would you, if we didn't raise a round, would you leave the company? No way. I would stay at the company. But I, I do think it would be a lot less exciting to folks who are not co-founders. Mm. Right? Because... At the end of the day, you guys still own a substantial part of the business, and it's still you could think about things on a much longer time horizon because it's it's your baby, right? And you'll always be here, and you'll always want to grow it. But for for folks who can't sort of lay that stake that same claim to it, um, it's kind of like this is a place that's growing fast, and there are a lot of opportunities for folks who at other places would be more junior, but the growth actually allows you to step into bigger roles and do more things, and that sort of changes if it becomes a slower-growing thing. Yeah, that's a good point. In other words, I would leave. I wouldn't leave. No, I wouldn't. But not now, but definitely, I mean, and I would totally understand. Like, I think, like, that makes a lot of sense. Like, you came here, you had lots and lots of options. Like, we should take a moment to explain like you came from BCG you were like widely loved there and like had probably any number of jobs at your disposal and could have commanded probably much higher salaries and like we're and and yes, I took a 50% pay cut yeah yeah. I <laughs> yeah and I think that's a very real thing and the fact that like we we are sort of like on this sort of rapidly ascendant trajectory is the only reason we can get somebody like you yeah um 
All right. So what do we have to do? So we have to go out and, and like, do the pitch again. <laughs> God. Coming up after the break, we do the pitch again. It's a lot different the second time around. Welcome back to Startup. I'm Alex Bloomberg. Longtime listeners to the Startup Podcast may remember what pitching was like for me the first time around. Shall we play that tape from season one again? Why not? What are you doing? So I'm making a network of digital podcasts uh, that we will monitor, that, that, will, that, will, that is going to meet. <laughs> Sorry. There was a lot of that. Stammering, feeling like an imposter. And if anything, raising a new round, the stakes would be even higher. We're raising what they call in the business a Series A round. Basically, a second round of investment that typically comes after your first round, your seed round. And a Series A takes us out of the plucky, overachieving startup category and puts us into an entirely different world. The way a Series A typically works, there's a lead investor who's coming in for a lot of money. Our largest single investor thus far had put in a little over a hundred grand. A Series A lead investor typically invests several million. The lead investor usually gets a seat on the board of directors. Matt and I didn't really have a board of directors. I mean, technically we did. It was comprised of Matt and me. But after a Series A, it becomes a lot more official. It'd be me and Matt and some investor. We'd have regular board meetings every couple months where we would discuss strategy and earnings, stuff like that. Also, to raise a Series A, we'd have to answer a question that a lot of investors want to know, a question that we don't have a perfect answer to. How do we replicate our success? How do we scale the business? How do you replicate a hit podcast? I wish I knew. You make one that takes off, and I can tell you from experience, you're right back at square one, trying to come up with something else that the world will like. That ambiguity, that imprecision, that's scary to a lot of investors. So we began this process by having informal talks with certain investors. We build these talks as information gathering only. If they asked us if we were planning to raise again, we'd act noncommittal, say we're just feeling out what's going on. We could probably get by without raising it was about a week into this phase of the strategy that I got this call from Matt. So, what to say? So, you, you know I've been having a bunch of different conversations with investors, but had sort of like, um, oh, I'll just tell you. So, we got our first term sheet. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Already? Yeah. Term sheet, by the way, that's investor speak for we want to invest. Term sheet lays out the terms, how much money the investor wants to put in, and at what valuation. And the valuation is important because a term sheet is sort of like an opening bid in a negotiation. And the lever you move in that negotiation is the valuation. So, for example, if an investor wants to put in $5 million at a $10 million valuation, they're buying half the company. If they invest $5 million at a $15 million valuation, they're buying a third of the company. They want to give us $5 million at a $25 million valuation. That would be for 20% of the company. Jeez, Louise, this is crazy. I know. I mean, I've been having these, what I have said are casual conversations in advance right. of, of doing more, a more formal process. But people saw right through that bullshit. Exactly. So since Startup has launched, I've heard from 
lots and lots of founders and entrepreneurs, many of whom have spent years trying to raise money. For us to get an investment proposal from a preliminary meeting at which I, the CEO, was not even present, it's ridiculous good fortune. And it's a testament, sure, to our hard work and skill, but also to timing. There was, after all, another podcasting wave back in the mid-2000s. There were a bunch of people pitching podcast companies in Silicon Valley around that time. One such company was Odeo. The founder of Odeo discovered what a lot of people did around that time. Even though the technology was there and it made sense to deliver on-demand audio content, the audiences weren't, and there wasn't really a good way to monetize. Most podcasting companies around that time folded, or did what Odeo did, pivoted. In Odeo's case, it pivoted to a small text-based messaging platform called Twitter. Anyway, the point is, timing is incredibly important. By the time we launched our podcasting company, podcasts were a known quantity, thanks in large part to the work of many, many people who'd come before us. Leo Laporte, who started This Week in Tech and has a bunch of tech-related podcasts on his Twit TV network. Earwolf, which was founded by a guy named Jeff Ulrich back in the late 2000s, which helped usher in the rise of the comedy podcast. Earwolf also helped us in another way. They had a division, Midroll Media, which sold ads for independent podcasters. In the beginning, we used Midroll to sell ads on our podcast as we got off the ground. And it's doubtful we could have gotten anywhere near the revenue we did that first year if we'd had to handle all our own sales on top of everything else we were trying to do. The point is, it's important to remember, in general, I think, the reasons for your success that have nothing to do with you personally. Fortunately, I have one other resource that keeps me from getting a big head. One of Gimlet's earliest investors and a regular on season one of Startup, billionaire investor Chris Saka. Dudes! I'd set up this call with Chris to update him on our plans, tell him what I thought he'd see as good news, that we were raising a Series A, that we already had a term sheet. I thought he'd be happy because this meant we were making the decision to grow faster, something he'd always encouraged us to do. Also, in very basic terms, a new $25 million valuation meant that, on paper at least, his investment in us had already more than doubled in value in just one year. Instead, he started interrogating me. Why do you need new money all of a sudden? Uh, we need, so we want to build out a bunch of stuff. We want to build out a sales force. Um, and a lot of it is just because inbound, you know, a lot of advertiser interest has been coming straight to us and it's sort of landing in, in Matt's e- email box. And, you know, we need, a, we need a team to sort of deal with that. So um, you've done some math that says that'll be more profitable for you to have those people right in-house. You don't need the lead gen, but you still need people to handhold through the sales process. And, 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 as, and, and you've as got we, some math somewhere that says that makes sense. We... We do. We have. I, well, I don't actually know if we have math somewhere, but it just it feels fairly obvious that that that, that makes sense um, because right now it's coming in anyway. So, how many people do you have for the next year? How many people staff up your sales and biz dev work? Uh, I don't remember the exact spreadsheet. We, All right. What know, else yeah. do you want to? What else are you going to grow? Um, and then we want to just we want to build out some more. We want to build out more shows. We also need to. We're gonna. We need to invest in space. We have to. We want to build out a bunch of studios. So a bunch of it is capital expenditures. We're gonna build out. We, we're moving into a, a, a bigger office office space. So you already um, found the place. We have. Yeah, we found the place. What's it? What's the cost? Don't know. I don't know. Uh, Matt, you're, this, Matt. you're the CEO, dude. <laughs> I know. Uh, a couple of things here. Uh huh. First of all, just you got to know your numbers, man. You mm-hmm. just got to like. There's just no excuse for not knowing your numbers, particularly for bigger stuff like this. If it's a big enough item uh-huh. that you're using it as why you need to raise a new round, you need to know that number. So what I'm trying to understand is five million dollars sounds like a lot of money. Then, yeah, you know, 
connect those dots for me? Well, what happened was we started having sort of exploratory conversations with people. Uh, and um, somebody gave us a term sheet. You know what I think? Yeah. I think you and, and, and Matt were sitting there driving the bus and a couple of guys knocked on the door and handed you a piece of paper and you were so busy reading it, you got moved to the back of the bus and they're driving now. Now somebody else is setting the table for you. Well, yeah. But I mean, that's like, but that's better than, I mean, so so I guess that's my question. No, no, is no, it, no, no, yeah. no. When some guys come along and offer you more money than you thought you might get, that is not a congratulatory event. That is not necessarily a great or positive thing. I've yet to hear you say that you needed more money. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean... Wait, just hold on one second. I'm so shocked by what's going on here. I, I, this was not what I was expecting us to be talking about. What would you have us be doing right now? What do you want us to see? What would you want to see us doing right now? There are smart people in this industry who say raise as much as you can whenever they're offering it to you. Uh-huh. Uh, but what concerns me is when I haven't heard from you the, the rigor that got you to that point. Somehow, after all this time, Chris Saka for me is still a hard sell even though I'm pitching him something that I know he wants to buy. I filled him in on all the rigor that we'd gone through, the debates that we'd had internally, all the conversations that had led to this decision. Basically, the stuff you've been listening to for the past 20 minutes or so on this podcast. And by the end, he came around. In fact, he's actually investing a bit more money himself. So we had one term sheet, but it was important to continue to explore options because the lead investor, it's a big deal. That person will become part of our company more so than any other investor we've had so far. We would be meeting regularly with the person at board meetings, going to them for advice and guidance. And ideally, we wanted someone who could help us navigate that tension that Fia and I had talked about earlier. How do we grow but still retain that startup energy? And there was one investor in particular that Matt and I had had preliminary conversations with that we really wanted to hear from. Pretend this isn't here. <laughs> uh, I've been around enough weird stuff in my life. And it's totally fine. We're in our conference room meeting with a guy named Tim O'Shaughnessy. He's the CEO of a company called Graham Holdings. And Graham is different than a typical VC firm. It's older, with a history dating back to the 1870s. And its background is almost entirely in media. It owned the Washington Post for decades before selling it to Jeff Bezos a couple years ago. It owns a bunch of other media properties like Slate and Kaplan, the educational and test prep company. And Tim, before being an investor, he ran a company on his own, Living Social, a daily deal company in the mold of Groupon. Tim co-founded that company, growing it from four employees in 2007 to 2,000 employees in 2014 when Tim stepped down as CEO. You understand what it's like to run a company? I found both in companies I've been involved in as an investor and as an operator, and then my wife's company, which I've seen very, very closely, and she she literally started it, and they're like 200 people now. It's it's kind of like going from 50 people to 150 people is the single hardest you know transition that I've seen in a company because the things that start to happen 
are people get hired and you don't realize. You, like, you knew there was a position there, but somebody shows up in the office someday and you're like, oh, do you work here? And you know, can I help you? And it's like, they work there. And you, know, you have to start managing based on metrics as opposed to kind of feel. And I think that's a really hard transition. So the only guidance I would give is as you get towards the end of that, you, know, you get towards 50, 60 people, make sure you have the people in the key uh, kind of, process elements of the business that can take you to that 150 point. This is an investor who has thought a lot about the same things that Fia and I discussed. And there's one other thing about Tim that's pretty unique, something that came out of a question that Matt asked him. Like, what would success look like for you with this investment? Uh, Obviously, there's the financial aspect of it and, you know, a, a, a good long-term rate of return on the investment would be something that is, is there. But we don't, it's not a three-year time horizon. It's, it's normally a pretty bit, you know, a pretty long time horizon. Now, a long time horizon, that's something that we had not heard that often in our investor conversations. Most investors are looking to get a return on their investment in around five years, maybe eight at the outset. That means they're looking for Matt and I to either take the company public or sell to some other larger company. Tim told us if we wanted to run the company ourselves for 30 years without what they call an exit, he'd be fine with that, as long as it's growing in value. In fact, he tells us, Graham Holdings purposely looks beyond just numbers when evaluating their investments. You know, a lot of the history of the company has been doing things that have a mission-driven aspect to them as well. Both from the, you know, we we on the post for a really long time. You know, the you know we're we're pretty big in the education business. We're big in the healthcare business, and and I just think you know, to the extent you guys well, if you're successful, you'll have a platform to do you know pretty interesting things that I think could make a difference if you have a wide audience there. And and so I think that that's the other thing that I, I think is possible here um, is you're not. It's something that you could you could really go and make meaningful change if you got big and had some scale. And I, I would view that as like a pretty successful uh, thing to have happen if if and to be part of that if if uh, if you guys were able to do that. This really resonates with us. We formed Gimlet to make money, sure, but there's lots of ways to make money. What we love about audio is the ability it has to actually more than any other medium out there create empathy on the part of the listener. We consider that part of our mission, to foster connection and understanding. It was nice to hear an investor care about that as well. Like, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, I believe in what you guys are doing, and, and you know, so I'm, I'm very interested and would, would give you a, a term sheet, but, it, uh, you know, I, if, if you are assuming that you're interested in, in, in me as a, as a partner as well, and, and Graham Holdings as a partner as well, so... Uh, so you... Uh, just sort of for a radio production cleanup. People might have missed it. You, you offered to invest in, in our company basically right now, more or less. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, for radio production cleanup purposes, yes, I, I, I think you guys are, have a great vision and have the ability to execute on it. And I would like to give you a term sheet that would uh, allow us to be partners. There was one small wrinkle with Tim. His company, Graham Holdings, owns Slate, 
which owns the podcast network Panoply. Panoply produces a bunch of great podcasts, The Slate Gab Fest, Hang Up and Listen, The Gist, a bunch more. This gave us pause at first. Is it weird to have an investor who owns what could be considered a competitor to our business? But the situations are so different. Panoply is wholly owned by Graham. Graham would have a minority stake in Gimlet, less than 20%. What this means is Gimlet and Panoply are fully independent of one another as companies. We just happen to share an investor. So in the end, we had two offers on the table, more or less identical, aside from two things, the board member and the time horizon. We liked both investors. We thought they'd be great board members. But Graham's longer-term strategy, along with Tim's focus on those culture things that we'd been worried about going into this, that swayed things in his favor. Here are the numbers, which if you told me these would be the numbers a year and a half ago, I would have thought you were insane, but here they are. We are taking $6 million in new investment at a $30 million valuation. That's pre-money for you startup nerds. Tim's company is putting in $5 million of that. The other million we reserved for other investors. There's a firm called Cross Culture Ventures that's putting in money, and a couple of our early seed investors are investing a bit more as well. Also, it felt important that our Gimlet members would have a chance to become investors as well. So uh, last week, we sent out a letter inviting them to invest through that same crowd investing platform we used in season one, a company called Choir. Within just a couple hours, all those slots were taken, around a half million dollars worth. It's exciting and gratifying and a relief to have it all done. And it's really exciting to have our new board member, Tim O'Shaughnessy. After all the paperwork was done and his $5 million was wired into our bank account, we called for a check-in. Um, how are you so feeling? I feel great. You kind of know the day after you have, have gone and wired money somewhere. <laughs> like the first, when you first wake up, you know, you always think about, okay, what happened yesterday? And, and I feel like that's the first instance where you feel like you, are you glad you did something or not? And like it hits you then. And I was totally glad that we did this. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. I, You've done this a bunch. Like, where, what do you see for Gimlet in five years? Oh, boy. Five, five years for a company that's existed for 15 months is a, uh, you know, <laughs> is, is, is a long forecast. Uh, uh-huh. But look, I mean, I, I think that you guys can build really, really high-quality content. And I think, you know, five years from now, it's totally plausible to me that you guys are a household name um, and that, you know, when the new show comes out and gets posted on Thursday, every, you know, there's some huge set of people that are hopping all over it and people are really excited about when you say you're going to launch a new show. Like I think about it in terms of that and less around, you know, how many employees are you? What do the financials look like, et cetera? Because I think if you do that right, then everything else just falls off of it. That's a nice vision. I like that. All right. Yeah. Well. <laughs> you can really deliver an ender piece of tape. <laughs> version 1A, I've got 1B, 1C, and 1D as I've just been sitting here practicing. <laughs> Start. 
Startup is produced by me and Eric Mennel, editing from Peter Clowney and Lisa Chow, mixing by Andrew Dunn, music from John Kimbrough and the band HotMoms.gov. Mark Phillips wrote and performed our theme song. Our ad music is by the band Build Buildings. Special thanks to Andrew Anker and Rafat Ali. Our website, where you can listen to past seasons of Startup and all of Gimlet's other shows, gimletmedia.com. And a special announcement, this week's episode of our new show, Surprisingly Awesome, is the Chumbawamba episode we previewed here a few weeks ago on Startup. So you should definitely go listen and hear how that show turned out in the end. We tweet at Podcast Startup. I'm at Abex Lumberg. We're back in two weeks with another episode of Startup. Startup.